Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, today, this afternoon, our guest is David Yusko, PsyD. Uh, he's been studying uh, PTSD, exposure therapy, naltrexone for people with alcohol dependence. They published a study recently. Uh, we're going to get to that very shortly. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, David Yusko, is with us right now. I'm going to bring him on the air. David, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about the study that you did. Uh, it was uh, with exposure therapy, with PTSD. Tell us what these things are. What is PTSD to start with? So PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a um, diagnosis that requires the experience of um, a traumatic event, um, and, and the, tra- the trauma has to um, reach a threshold level that is typically involves um, uh, life-threatening situations. Uh, very typically, these would be things like a, a physical assault, a sexual assault, the experience of being in a natural disaster, a uh, serious accident, combat, obviously, and war would be um, another um, serious traumatic event. And um, in the aftermath of uh, experiencing such a trauma, um, uh, people uh, will continue to experience symptoms of uh, several different clusters of types. Uh, the first type of ex- um, symptoms that people have is called re-experiencing symptoms, where the memory of the trauma um, forces its way into people's lives via being reminded by things in their environment, um, either through nightmares um, or sometimes they just someone can be just sitting there and it's all of a sudden the memory just pops back up into their mind out of the blue. Um, and so people will have these re-experiencing symptoms, which is very often followed by symptoms of avoidance or um, trying to push thoughts and feelings away, as well as avoiding situations that remind them about what happened. So very often what you would see is people avoiding things like crowded places, having people um, in their personal space, news stories that might remind them of what happened to them, movies, um, things that just feel similar to the event that they went through. Um, followed by what we call numbing symptoms, very similar to the idea of um, um, people feeling like they've been through an experience that other people can't relate to and that it's changed who they are, that they're different from other people and not feeling as though they can form the same connections or bonds with people and that that then in turn leaves them feeling worse in the long run 
that they don't have access to the positive emotions that we take for granted, love, joy, happiness. They're kind of numb to those positive feelings, but not so much to the negative ones. And then the last symptoms, there are arousal symptoms, difficulty with sleep, concentration, their um, startle response, they're jumpy and easily startled, um, they're vigilant, constantly checking around them to see who's there, um, and oftentimes more irritable and angry. So a variety of these symptoms kind of comprise what PTSD is. How common is PTSD? Some, it's around 8% of people will have a lifetime diagnosis of PTSD. So um, it's millions of, of Americans. The um, vast majority of people will experience a trauma. And so those list of things that I talked about before, car accident, uh, uh, physical assault or sexual assault and the like, are quite frequent. Um, more than 50% of people will have something like that happen to them at one point in their life. And the good news is that most people don't go on to live with PTSD after that. Um, many people will have an initial flare-up of symptoms after a trauma, but usually after the first um, several weeks, those symptoms naturally recover. And then there um, seems to be um, uh, about 8% uh, of folks who will have PTSD. And it depends on the trauma, too. Like mm -hmm. in a natural disaster, very few people will have PTSD after that, depending on how severe it is. Um, like if you take um, Hurricane Sandy that just came through the Northeast, um, fewer people had PTSD after that versus the earthquake in Haiti, as an example, where there was vast devastation and destruction, and a lot of people died in the earthquake in Haiti. So the more severe the event, the more likely it is to lead to PTSD, which is why sexual assault or, or um, a rape is highly prevalent to lead to PTSD. Um, and so men and women who have experienced that um, are upwards of 50% likely to have PTSD three months after a rape. How about combat situations? Uh, is there... Is there a repeated exposure to trauma in a combat situation? Is that more likely to lead to PTSD? Has that been studied? It's, um, we, we see that there's higher rates of PTSD in combat. So combat and sexual assault are the two types of trauma that are most likely to lead to longer-term PTSD symptoms and are harder for people to naturally recover from, yes. And how do you treat PTSD? So there's several um, treatments that have um, a lot of evidence supporting them. Um, the, the treatment that um, was developed here at the University of Pennsylvania by Dr. Edna Foa is called prolonged exposure therapy. And the... Um, the real theory behind this treatment is that a trauma, a trauma is a real shock um, to one's system. And on some level, 
the body and the brain is ill-prepared for what to do with this information. And it's very natural for someone after an experience like this to want to avoid thoughts and feelings and reminders. And what you usually see, though, over time is that people generally get back into the swing of their life and they either naturally will talk about what happened to people that they're close to and will get back into doing things again. So the avoidance doesn't take over, um, become such a pattern. Uh, but what we see with people who go on to stick with PTSD symptoms over time is that their pattern of avoidance um, becomes more solidified. And so as a, as a real coping strategy, they rely heavily on avoiding the memory of what happened, the feelings of what happened, and the triggers in their environment that bring those things up. And the more people avoid, the more likely they are to stay stuck in those symptoms. And so what prolonged exposure therapy is designed to do is to help people process and digest the experience that happened to them and that in a way that they've naturally been unable to do because they've been avoiding information that would help correct things for them. So um, prolonged exposure therapy asks people to do two main interventions. Uh, one is called um, in vivo exposure, which is basically confronting memory uh, triggers in their environment. And so let's say that someone is becomes nervous or scared of going into crowded places because what if something bad were to happen there? And so what we do is we create a list of things and we rank them from easy to do to very hard to do. And if you think of crowded places, you can imagine like a movie theater. And there's a big difference between going to a movie theater um, on a Tuesday afternoon to a movie that's been out for several weeks. So that movie theater is likely to be not very crowded compared to opening Friday night movie theater where uh, that show is just opening up and it's a blockbuster and that that crowded theater is going to be very difficult for a person to sit in. And so we help people confront these situations from easier to harder over the course of treatment. And what we hope to see happen is that people will learn that things aren't as dangerous as they might think they are and that if they practice this more often, it gets easier to do. Their emotions start to habituate uh, and, and lessen over time. All of this helps them learn that things are um, not as bad as they may think and that they are stronger, more capable people than they might otherwise have thought. So that's in vivo exposure. Then the second main intervention is called imaginal exposure. And this is where in um, our therapy sessions, we revisit the trauma memory with the patient and we go through um, what happened to them um, over and over and over again in an attempt to accomplish some of the same goals to really help them um, process and digest this memory and not avoid it, not push it away to realize that revisiting this memory is not the same as having lived through the experience. The memory itself is not dangerous. 
and the memory doesn't have to control and dictate their life. In fact, you can gain control over the memory, and we really try to help people process and digest it via the revisiting of the memory. Um, and so we spend the vast majority of our time in session doing imaginal exposure work together. Now, some people might be imagining something very dramatic, like they might see on TV where the person is saying, no, no, I can't face it, and the therapist is saying, oh, you have to. Is it like that, or is it much or is it gentler? Uh, I think it's actually much gentler uh, uh, on, on some level. I know that... Um, it's hard to ask people to confront something that they've been avoiding for a long time and that there is a lot of emotion and distress involved in talking about these things. Um, but on some level, that's what therapy is very often about all the time, is that therapy is often about talking about difficult things and helping people open themselves up to feelings and emotions that they're uncomfortable with and would rather avoid. And so in some respect, I really don't see that this is a lot different from what the goals of therapy are in general, um, where, where exposure therapy can um, be misunderstood sometimes is that we're forcing people to do things. And that's very far from the truth. Um, we, we really spend, the other component that I didn't talk much about is, is education, and we spend a lot of time talking to patients about um, the, the process of avoidance and how we believe people get stuck with symptoms and how they're maintained over time, and talk very explicitly about how exposure is going to help them recover so that they are fully informed about why we're asking them to do the things that were um, treatment involves, and get their participation and collaboration. And so they're very much active, willing participants with encouragement from us, for sure. And so people will, you know, often talk about that, that it's hard and it's difficult and they don't want to do it. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we ever force people to, but we do encourage and we do try to remind them, why are we doing this? Why is this important? What's the benefit of doing this? To try to keep their motivation moving forward and not let avoidance continue to dictate um, their lives and also keep them stuck in the long run. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned taking them to, to uh, gradual steps from you know, the less crowded theater to the more crowded theater. Very, very true when it comes to in vivo exposure. And so, you know, it's a gradual working through where their confidence and strength is building up over time. And so we're not asking people to just to jump into the deep end of the pool and expect them to swim. Um, we really are trying to help uh, them confront things at a pace that they're ready and, and able to do. Um, but with imaginal exposure, we, we, we try to go for many people have experienced more than one traumatic event. Um, and so in imaginal exposure, uh, what we try to do is, is, is help people process and digest what they believe to be the worst experience or the one that's bothering or haunting them the most. And the reason we do that is because we believe that if we can address the hardest memory, that you'll see the benefits of that work apply to all other experiences that they've had. 
so that instead of having to work through um, three, four, five different experiences, if you work through the hardest experience, those gains generalize to the other experiences, and that's how treatment can also be done in a short-term basis. And so prolonged exposure therapy very generally is as short as 8 to 15 sessions. Now, do a lot of people with the PTSD, do they have uh, comorbid substance use issues with alcohol or other substances? Yes, it's one of the um, very unique comorbidities. Um, people with substance use issues very often have other psychiatric diagnoses, um, but PTSD has a very unique relationship um, with substance abuse, um, mainly because substances become excellent uh, tools for avoiding feelings, and very often, um, after trauma, people find substances as a really good way to help them feel less. And the downside to that is that it works so well that people begin to use it more, and then they begin to continue to develop this habit and then to become to rely um, on this habit and that pattern. And so what we see is if you were to assess your average um, substance abuse center clinic that um, potentially as many as 50% of people in a substance abuse center um, will have a diagnosis of PTSD as well. And if you look the other way, if you look at the number of people with PTSD, about how many of those would have a substance abuse problem as well? And so what you see is that there's a two to three times greater likelihood that a person with PTSD will have a substance use problem. So it's, um, they are at an uh, increased risk if someone's walking into a mental health center with a history of um, trauma, current PTSD, they are two to three times greater likelihood to also have a substance use problem. Oh, okay. Um, now, I think there was some controversy about uh, doing exposure therapy with people who had substance use problems with people who had alcohol dependence. And what were, they, what were people afraid of if you uh, did exposure therapy with them? Well, it's, a, it's, it's been a very legitimate concern um, that uh, people in the early stages of sobriety are very fragile. And in the midst of making that change, um, confronting them with a you know, very emotional treatment would increase uh, A, cravings, and B, actual use. And so it's really been you know, clinically appropriate for people to obtain sobriety, maintain that sobriety for a period of time, and then once you're strong there, address more, more, more challenging, difficult emotional content. Um, and that's, that, you know, was a hypothesis that became the basis for treatment. And I think it's very logical and makes actually, you know, a lot of sense. Um, the problem has been, though, that this unique relationship between PTSD and substance use is that people with PTSD are less likely to stay in treatment so if you have any other psychiatric diagnosis, other than maybe 
severe mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But if you have another anxiety disorder or depression um, compared to PTSD, you're less likely to stay in treatment if you have PTSD. And, and if you do, you're less likely to retain your gains that you made in treatment. So you're more likely to relapse sooner if you have PTSD compared to another um, anxiety disorder or depression. So there's a unique relationship that takes place when PTSD interacts with substance use. And the downside to waiting too long to address trauma in substance use treatment is that you don't maintain your substance treatment gains. And so you then have this type of revolving door syndrome where, you know, you can't, you have to get sober first and you have to stay sober until we can treat you. But the problem is once you get sober, all of your PTSD symptoms get worse, which then leads to relapse, which then they can never get well long enough to actually address part of what's driving their substance use. So that really was part of the rationale behind this study was to take um, the, the clinical tradition that was never evaluated but just thought to be reasonable and to actually test it out to see if, in fact, um, that rationale holds up to be true. Okay. I'm going to get back to something a little bit later, but I'm going to go. Uh, so you were working. Were you were you working with active substance users to give them uh, the exposure therapy? So these were people who met criteria for alcohol dependence um, and PTSD, and um, they came right to us as an outpatient treatment um, facility, and the. Only thing that we asked was that we helped them obtain um, about it varied between one patient to another, but we if they needed more help detoxing, it would be a little bit longer, but as short as three days of sobriety to as many as seven days of abstinence prior to starting the the treatment. So these were essentially people who were drinking right up until they started treatment. And then we went through a detoxification period, and then they started therapy. And the detoxification was done on an outpatient basis as well. Okay. And uh, well, well, continue. I'm gonna have you have you continue. So, well, I want to. But uh, okay, the question is: Did the patients reduce their drinking? Because, or did some of them stop completely, or what? What was going on while they were getting the therapy? Were some of them uh, relapsing at times? Were they drinking some? Were they all abstinent? So after that initial um, detoxification, patients, since it was a research study, they got randomized, meaning um, kind of like a computer would flip a coin almost and would determine what conditions they would get. Uh, we didn't know what medication they would get. Um, so either they were getting a, a, a pill called naltrexone or they were getting placebo. Um, no one knew what they were getting. But naltrexone had um, a lot of promise. Um, 
when the study was mm-hmm. designed about 10 years ago as a really new up-and-coming effective medicine for treating alcohol dependence. And so um, what, what the real active treatment was, was uh, naltrexone or placebo. And so either people got that naltrexone or they didn't, and then they got supportive counseling from our, our nurse. And so our nurse would really provide all patients with um, counseling with regards to their alcohol use, with, with relationship problems. She could talk to them about anything except trauma. She was not allowed to address any of their PTSD symptoms. And what that was then saved for was their um, therapist. And so they were, again, randomly assigned to either receive prolonged exposure therapy right away, right as they came into the treatment, or it was delayed to the end of treatment, which was six months later. And so the study design was to determine whether or not um, active treatment, if you got naltrexone and prolonged exposure therapy, would be your best treatment versus what would potentially be, you know, your least amount of therapy would be the placebo with no prolonged exposure therapy and the counseling by the nurse. Uh, So we were comparing these different iterations And so the goal was to test if you provided prolonged exposure therapy early on, would that be good or bad for these patients? And what we found was that during the active part of treatment, um, everybody did really well, actually. Um, So the good news was that most people reduced their drinking significantly from the point um, where they were drinking about uh, 75% of the day, of their days. So we used what's called a timeline follow-back where we would, you know, review their last 30 days and most people were drinking 75% of those days. Um, And they were drinking fairly heavily, um, drinking up and above 20 standard drinks in an average week. Um, so these were folks who really had alcohol problems. They were, were um, met the criteria for alcohol dependence and either got prolonged exposure therapy right after entering treatment or it got delayed to six months later. And everybody did well. And so the good news on some level is that if you got prolonged exposure therapy at the early part of your sobriety, that you didn't do worse than the people who didn't get that. So you didn't have increase in cravings and you didn't have increase in actual alcohol use compared to the group that didn't have trauma-focused therapy early in treatment. Um, The better news was when treatment ended. And so six months later, treatment ended. They've had upwards of 18 visits with the nurse and their therapist. And then treatment stops. And when you follow them for six months after that, what you saw was that the group that got both the naltrexone and the prolonged exposure therapy during treatment maintained their drinking gains, meaning they continued to drink less than those patients who didn't get those interventions. And so you saw relapse happening sooner in all the other treatment groups 
compared to those who got that naltrexone and the prolonged exposure therapy. And what it suggests is that, A, trauma-focused therapy early in sobriety is not detrimental to someone's outcome. That doing in vivo exposure to trauma reminders and triggers, doing imaginal exposure to traumatic memories, in fact, not only doesn't increase cravings or actual drinking behavior, but they're no different. And if anything, they were a little bit better. The biggest important thing was after treatment, they maintained those gains over time. And I think like when we talk about any substance use, the biggest concern is always relapses about what happens after treatment ends. And the real hope here was that this treatment could really help people maintain those gains for a longer period of time. And I thought that was like just a great and wonderful outcome of what we learned. Okay. So, you know, there's so many rehab programs, standard uh, addiction treatment programs, you know, where if you have one relapse, if you have one drink, one ingestion of one substance, you're kicked out of the treatment. But that wasn't this, that wasn't that way at all with your approach, was it? It was, uh, people weren't shamed or punished for a relapse, were they? No. Um, You know, we really took more of the approach that um, we knew that that's part of the illness. That's that's how it usually works, and so we didn't we didn't it didn't make sense um, to kind of punish people um, for acting in a way or or for a symptom of their disease showing up. And if anything, that just you know reinforced the reasons that they were with us, and we just used that as an opportunity to continue to work with them and problem solve. You know why things like that happened. Um, and so for us, it was valuable information to have, um, not not an indication or a reason um, to stop treatment, um, but good information, helpful for us to help them continue to get better. So are you familiar with the work of Alan Marlatt? Yes, very. Okay, good, good, because it sounds like you're very much using Marlatt's model of treatment. Very much so. I mean, um, you know, at, uh, I um, studied my um, psychology degree at Rutgers um, University in New Jersey, and um, we we really learned the relapse prevention model um, of treatment, um, and and really use that to um, work with people. Um, who were coming in with this problem at the Center for Alcohol Studies at Rutgers. Um, and it just so happened that when I came here to Penn, that that was the model that the study was using as well. And so we were very open to whatever the patient wanted. And so the only thing that they needed to do was take their medication, whether it was naltrexone or placebo, and then talk to the nurse. And if someone wanted to attend 12-step, they attended 12-step groups. If someone wanted to go to smart recovery, they would go to smart recovery. If they didn't want to go to 12-step groups, they didn't go. We we just worked with them any way we could um, to help them, you know, develop their, their plan. 
And as long as it, as it was working and they were getting better and that progress was being made, we didn't necessarily care how it, it, it occurred. We were not tied to any one way of treatment when it came to their alcohol use. No, that's, that's excellent. Amar, that's one of uh, my heroes. He, he also wrote the preface to our Ham's book, How to Change Your Drinking. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he no, had a he great was, loss when he a, passed away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times and hearing him talk, and uh, I really thought that he, uh, you know, had a really nice and compassionate way of thinking about helping folks with substance use problems. I also want to ask, are you familiar with uh, Andrew Tatarski's work at all? Yep. It's, uh, is that the Center for Optimal Living that he founded, correct? I think the, yes. uh, he has a has a book out. Um, I was in New York in October to hear him give a lecture. Um, and, you know, I thought a lot of the, the dialogue of harm reduction, um, it was really a harm reduction-focused dialogue. Um, that, that uh, you know, I, I really kind of resonated with and enjoyed listening to. Yeah, it seems to me that your approach is very much uh, congruent with the Tatarski because, you know, Andrew was uh, one of the first people that was saying, you know, I will, I will treat you even if you don't stop using substances. And he found that people, even while they were actively using substances, started making psychotherapeutic gains, and simultaneously their substance use improved. They either used less, they were safer, some would quit. Um, so, oh. you know, the, the old paradigm of go to treatment, get sober first, then come and treat your, your uh, psychological difficulties, that, that seems like it's the wrong way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that that works for some people. Um, you know, I... You know, I I know that that might even be necessary for some people, but um, I, I certainly don't think that's the only path. You know, if you really look at, you know, like the work of um, um, the Sobels who talk about, you know, people mm-hmm. who also just naturally recover, the vast majority of people don't ever seek help um, mm-hmm. with substance use issues, and they're able to figure it a, a way through this themselves, either to either stay abstinent or reduce their use to a level that they're able to function and exist with. And so, you know, when we really think about it, most people don't engage professionals at all. And so for us to think that there is this only one way, I, I, I think is, uh, I just don't know that that's realistic. I think that there are many paths toward getting a person to be where they want to be. And uh, my job, I feel like, is more to try to find the path that's best for that person and not to dictate mm-hmm. it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only difficulty with the self-recovery, well, one of the difficulties is it can take a long time. Gene um, Heyman was recently talking about the, the half-life for alcohol dependence is about 14 years. And for cocaine or marijuana, it's like six, and heroin is eight or nine. So it, it's a yeah. long time. So yeah. if you can speed that up, it's really good. I'm with you. Yep. I just more use that example to remind us that we don't have the the, the answers all the time. Mm-hmm. And well, to I remind that, myself uh, that uh, I may want this to happen, but just because it's not happening doesn't immediately make it wrong. 
Well, I think it's, uh, you know, for us, the thing to do is to work with, you know, this natural recovery, the self-recovery, to try to encourage it, to speed it along, to give some strategies to help people do it themselves so that they can, you know, get there a little quicker or a little more successfully with less damage on the way. That, uh, you know, it's not like we're curing people. People are curing themselves, yeah. but we're helping them to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that... Um the work of Bill Miller and the, the motivational interviewing mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, idea or, or way of, of, of helping also has been, um, you know, a, a, another great contribution to to the field and to, to help us have a spirit or, or a way of of being with folks that I think is has been you know really influential. Um, to make treatment become a more compassionate place for folks. Yeah, I think it's been huge, not just more compassionate, but far more successful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, we tried to embody some of that in what we did, but, um, you know, when it fundamentally came down to it, what we were really testing was naltrexone versus placebo. Um, The problem was our nurse was so kind and nice that people just really benefited from being with her and so a lot of a lot of people got better regardless of whether they were taking the naltrexone or the placebo or whether they were doing the prolonged exposure therapy or not you know the, the treatment of having the nurse was just really helpful and so you really didn't start to see things separate out until after treatment ended and that's really where we saw the difference in our study primarily, and a lot of that was because our nurse saw everybody and was a super kind person to, to them. Well, you know, it's always interesting when you look at the control groups. Uh, that goes back to, what's his name? I can't pronounce his name. I think it's Async, or I think. Um, uh-huh. studied that way back when, the, the psychiatric treatment versus the waiting list, and everybody yeah. on the waiting list improved. And they said, yeah. well, wait, <laughs> that's not supposed to happen. But, of course, people tend to seek treatment when they're in crisis. So, yeah. a, a crisis passes. Yeah, and this, you know, maybe, you know, it was the control group, but it wasn't a inactive control. You know, there was a mm-hmm. lot of activity going on there. And even though she wasn't doing trauma-focused therapy, you know, she was providing a lot of comfort and support and comfort and support means a lot, and it's sometimes yeah, hard to even help people more than that. And so I think you said that people that got the exposure therapy also talked to the nurse, and so they also got the comfort and support. So they actually got two That's things right. as opposed to they one. They got two things. That's right. Yep. Ah. Yep. I want to ask about the naltrexone. You, you were using oral naltrexone? Correct. So the patients would get um, a packet of pills, and they would take those pills um, once a day. And then they would bring back their packet at the end of the week, and they'd get a new packet. So every day in the morning? Yeah, I think, you know, each person kind of picked their time that they took it, but about the same time every day, whether it was morning or afternoon or night, as long as they were consistent with the time. Not to go on too much sidetrack, have you ever heard of the Sinclair Method? Uh, No. 
Um, it's an interesting protocol that they've been working on in Finland. Actually, the Finnish government has adapted it as a standard, I believe. Um, but it, it involves taking the naltrexone only before drinking to extinguish the drinking behavior. And he yeah. seems to have had quite a bit of success with it. And now... Really? Um, yeah, the Finnish government does, has adopted it as a standard treatment protocol in Finland. Um, where I mean, David Sinclair just moved there to Finland because they'd let him do all his experiments with his rats and his naltrexone he wanted. And just, uh, but he, he kind of developed this protocol that seems to have uh, worked quite well. And now there's uh, some movement in the U.S. too. But you know, it's it's difficult because when you talk to United States doctors, they've generally not heard of naltrexone being used this way, and they're like, you know. Oh, what? No, we need to give you the 30-day shot, so you have no choice. Uh, but, uh, I see. Right. So what is the, is, the, is the mechanism that taking it right before drinking helps um, kind of numb the positive effects that the drinking would ordinarily provide? Somehow the naltrexone helps block that? Yeah, because it blocks the opioids, it leads to an extinction of the yeah. of the habit, so that's the yeah. whole theory. Um, yeah. and it seems to work quite well when people are compliant. I've heard some people say, right. "Well, the naltrexone messes up my buzz, so I don't want to take it." But that's right. Uh, there's a couple books out about this uh, now. Uh, um, Claudia Christian is making a film. She's an actress who was on, I think, Deep Space Nine, um, but. Uh, she's a big proponent of it, so it's an, it's another interesting way of using naltrexone that might be very useful for some people. Yeah, you know, as long as you've got folks who are willing to um, um, take their medication like that, sounds like it's great. Yeah, they seem to have had pretty good success rates. Um, well. I'm so, I kind of covered the things I wanted to cover. Uh, what would you like to leave us with today? Well, I really want to um, encourage the incorporation of, um, of PTSD treatment on a concurrent basis with substance use treatment. Um, I really, it's not just our study, but there are, you know, a handful now of research studies that have been done where people are receiving substance abuse treatment and um, evidence-based trauma treatment at the same time. And there's no indication to suggest that doing that um, worsens outcomes at all. And so the idea um, that uh, talking about trauma um, early in recovery would be dangerous to do for their recovery does not appear to be the case. Um, and if anything, what it does is actually enhance and increase the likelihood that substance abuse treatment will be effective and that their gains will be maintained. So from my perspective, um, this, this longstanding belief, uh, I want to try to spread the word as much as possible that um, you know we don't need to wait and in fact, if we really want to provide the best care for folks with this particular comorbidity, is that concurrent treatment is the way to go. Um, that that's the best treatment that we can give people with substance use problems and PTSD. 
Okay, thank you very much. I am totally in agreement with that, and I think even other forms of psychotherapy, too, can be done concurrently, and I hope to see lots more research on the effectiveness of uh, simultaneous, uh, you know, substance use treatment and psychological treatments in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We hope to okay, well, thank you ourselves. For, thank you for being our guest this afternoon. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Okay. Bye, everybody. We'll see you all next week.